0: our glorious and great God, our gracious God in whom we trust, in whom is our salvation, we cry out to You with praise and thanksgiving. We rejoice in You and shout Your greatness to the heavens. You are the only true God, the only wise Creator, the omnipotent Ruler, the gracious Savior. O Father in Heaven, You have ordained all that comes to pass, working all things together according to Your counsel. And Your eternal purpose is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus, Your eternal Son, and our elder brother, the firstborn from the dead, who was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. In Him all things hold together, for He is Your wisdom, holiness, and love. And through Your Holy Spirit we come to know You in Your Son. For Your Spirit inspired the Scriptures, the perfect and full revelation of who You are and Your purposes. And the Spirit has been poured out on us in baptism to unite us to Your Son. And the Spirit makes the bread and wine spiritual food and drink to us at Your table so that we may truly feed upon Christ's body and blood. And so, Father, today we ask, give us all Your gifts. Give us the gifts of the Spirit Gifts empowering us and equipping us for royal service in Your Kingdom. And so today, Father, Son, and Spirit, do Your work. Give us life and wisdom and glory. Make all things new. Shower us with repentance that we might turn from sin and serve You faithfully. Fill us with grace and love and truth. Renew Your everlasting covenant with us. You are the true God. And You have made us Your people, the sheep of God of Your pasture. Glorify us that we might give You glory. Make us sharers in Your glory that we might bask in Your glory and reflect Your glory back to You and to the world around us. Give to us that we might give to You. Bless us that we might be a blessing. This is our prayer of thanksgiving and praise, O holy and merciful God. Amen.
1: Our sermon text this morning is uh, part of the Old Testament lesson. I'll read the first few verses of chapter 18, which were read just a few moments ago. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. And some years later he went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. And Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him and the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against Ramoth Gilead. And Ahab, king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Said to Joshua, king of Judah, will you go up with me against Ramoth Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, and my people are as your people. We will be with you in the battle. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that inspired these pages, these words of scripture. We pray that that Spirit would be with us to teach us today. We pray in His, in Jesus' name. Amen. May you Jehoshaphat spends the first part of his reign breaking things. He tears apart the high places. He breaks down the idols that the people of Judah had begun to worship. He begins with a process of destruction. And that's a good thing. This is one of the things that the kings of Judah are supposed to do. They're supposed to break things, break down the idols, break down the high places. Shatter all the shrines where people worship either false gods or worship the true God falsely. We're told that this is an expression of what's on Jehoshaphat's heart. His heart is high for the law of the Lord. That phrase, his heart is high, or his heart is exalted, or his heart is courageous, is sometimes used in a negative way in Chronicles. Uzziah's heart becomes high and he marches into the temple and tries to do something that only priests are supposed to do. But in this case, Jehoshaphat's heart is high in the law of the Lord. He's courageous in doing the Lord's will, and that expresses itself in a uh, program, an agenda of destruction. Jehoshaphat isn't satisfied, though, with destroying idols and breaking down shrines and high places. He begins a positive program. He's walking in the way of David, not only in what he breaks, but also in what he builds. <clears throat> and so in the third year of his reign, the third year, a year of resurrection and new life, he sends out teachers throughout the land to teach the law of the Lord to the people of Judah. He sends out teachers, he sends out priests, he sends out Levites, Levites with significant names that uh, Jimmy spoke very, very well earlier today significant names like who is like God. Yah remembers. Servant of Yah. Gift of Yah. The last three in verse 8 are Yah is Lord, Adonijah. Yah is good, Tobijah. And then Tobadonijah. Yah is a good Lord. These Levites scatter out throughout the land and they teach the people to keep the law. They teach the Torah to the people of Judah. And as they do that... It has an effect not only within Judah, but it has an effect on the surrounding nations. This program of teaching, these circuit teachers, these traveling teachers, these peripatetic philosophers and theologians, are part of the national security agenda of Jehoshaphat. When they go out and teach the people and the people begin to keep the law of the Lord, dread falls on the nations surrounding them. The nations not only fear the Lord and fear Jehoshaphat, but they begin to bring tribute to Jehoshaphat because he's sending out teachers. Later in the uh, Chronicler's account of Jehoshaphat's reign, he fights off a, a set of allies, Gentiles who have allied together against Judah. He fights them off by sending out the Levitical choir to sing. And when they go out and sing, dread falls on the people who are opposing them. He doesn't send the army out. He sends out the choir to fight his battle. This is Jehoshaphat's national security policy. You want a secure nation, teach the people to keep the law. If you want a secure nation, teach them to sing and teach them to fight fight with their fingers and with their voices. And then later in his reign, he sets up a judicial circuit. He's not content to just teach the people the law, He sends out judges throughout the land so they can enforce the law, so they can decide disputes among the people. Jehoshaphat begins his reign breaking things, but he also builds things. He builds Judah up by teaching. He builds Judah up by their singing. He builds Judah up by these judges who go out throughout the land. And he's one of the heroes of the book of Chronicles. He's one of the heroic kings in the the history of Judah. But like nearly every king in the in the Book of Chronicles, Jehoshaphat has a flaw. David has a flaw. In Chronicles, the only mistake or error that he makes is to number the people, uh, which is forbidden to him. He takes a census of the people, and that brings a judgment on Judah. Solomon is a virtually faultless king according to the chronicler, but every other king has some significant flaw. And the flaw of Jehoshaphat is significant not only for himself, but also for those who succeed him. His error, his sin, his uh, sinful alliance reverberates through several generations after him. We're told about this sin at the beginning of chapter 18. After it's described his wealth, after it's described his faithfulness, we're told that he entered into a marriage alliance with Ahab, the king of Judah. That's the king... Uh, A king of Israel, that's the king in the northern kingdom. This is taking place after the united kingdom of David and Solomon has split in two. And you have a northern kingdom that's called Israel and a southern kingdom that's called Judah. At this time, Jehoshaphat is reigning in Judah. And Ahab is reigning in the north in the country of Israel. This is the first time that Ahab's name comes up in Chronicles. We don't know much about him. We're not told all the background that we get in Kings. We're not told about his father. We're not told about his marriage to Jezebel, a Gentile idolatrous princess. We're not told about the house of Baal that he builds in Samaria. We're not told about his devotion to Baal. He just pops into the story and Jehoshaphat enters into a marriage alliance with him. Jehoshaphat gives his son Jehoram to Athaliah, who is Ahab's daughter. But even in Chronicles, we have reason to be suspicious of this alliance we have reason to be suspicious of the kings of the northern kingdom the kings of the northern kingdom are said to be in rebellion against the house of david it's not as if they did they they peacefully and legitimately separated from the house of david according to the chronicler they're in rebellion against their rightful king who is the davidic king in this case jehoshaphat jeroboam the first king of the northern kingdom expelled priests and levites from his kingdom and they had to go down to the south to serve in the south. Jeroboam, the first king of the north, sets up golden calves at Dan and Bethel and leads the people in worship at those golden calves. This is the first time we've met Ahab, but we know he's a king of Israel, so we know that can't be good, and it can't be a good thing for Jeroboam to have an alliance with the king, the king of Israel. But that marriage alliance expands throughout the chapters, that we have about Jehoshaphat. It begins as an alliance of marriage between Jehoshaphat's son and Ahab's daughter. But we find in chapter 18 that some years after that alliance was entered into, Jehoshaphat goes out from Jerusalem and goes down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Every time a Davidic king leaves Jerusalem in the book of Chronicles, something bad happens. The, the classic case of this is Josiah at the end of Chronicles who leaves Jerusalem to go out and confront a pharaoh who's marching through his territory. The pharaoh tells him, no, that you shouldn't come out and fight me. I'm on the Lord's business. I'm going to fight against the Assyrians. Don't come and get in between us. And Josiah doesn't listen, and he ends up being killed in that battle. It's a bad thing for a king of Jerusalem to go out of Jerusalem, and especially to go out of Jerusalem into Samaria, where Ahab is king and where there is where idolatry reigns. Ahab prepares a great feast for Jehoshaphat. After all, they're in-laws. This is kin. But the feast doesn't seem to be just a feast to celebrate a visit from a neighboring king. If you heard the phrase, somebody slaughtered sheep and oxen for him and for all the people just in isolation... If you knew that was from the Bible, you might think, this sounds like a temple dedication. This sounds like a great act of worship. And I think it is. Ahab is getting ready to go out and fight at Ramoth Gilead. He's getting ready to go out and fight against the Arameans. He wants to make sure that all of his gods are on his side. So he has this great sacrificial feast. And Jehoshaphat participates in that great sacrificial feast. Jehoshaphat doesn't just go to visit an in-law... Because of his marriage alliance, he's entered into a kind of religious alliance. He's gone out of Jerusalem in order to partake at the table of demons. And this is all a part of Ahab's attempt to entice or to induce Jehoshaphat to join him in his war against the Arameans, the Syrians. That verb entice or induce is used only one other time in Chronicles, back in First Chronicles 21, where we're told that Satan induced David to number the people. That was the one great sin of David, according to the Chronicler. And it was inspired by an adversary, a Satan, who induces him or entices him to take control of the people as if they were his own. And now Ahab is enticing or inducing Jehoshaphat to do exactly the same thing. He spreads this great feast. They share this sacrificial meal together. And he says, Will you go up with me to fight against Rahoth gilead Will you fight with me against the Arameans? And notice what Jehoshaphat says, 18.3. I am as you are. My people are as your people. But they're not his people. That was David's mistake. David's mistake was to think he could number the people of Israel as if they were his to deploy as he will. As he would, they weren't his people; they're Yahweh's people, and he should muster them and deploy them only when Yahweh commands him. But Jehoshaphat is dedicating Yahweh's hosts, not his own hosts, to serve a program and a military plan for Ahab, an idolater who has rejected Yahweh. It starts as a marriage; it starts as a marriage alliance it becomes a kind of religious alliance it's a military alliance and it's a military alliance that at least is strategically inept inconsistent they're going off to fight against the arameans ahab and jehoshaphat the king of judah and the king of israel are going off to fight against the arameans to capture a city from the arameans how did that city become uh, a part of the aram uh, the, the country of aram in the first place page back a couple of pages in Chronicles and you find that Jehoshaphat's father helped the Arameans capture that city. Jehoshaphat's father Asa paid money to the Arameans to attack Israel. And now in the next generation, Jehoshaphat is allying with Ahab, the king of Israel, to recover the very city that his father helped the Arameans to conquer. I suppose that you could find some way to defend that, but it's at least an inconsistent foreign policy. You go from one generation to the other. The first generation, you're aligned with the Arameans and attacking Israel. The next generation, you're aligned with Israel, and you're trying to recover the same territory that you helped them take in the first place. Sin makes Jehoshaphat stupid. This alliance leads him into inept planning and inept policy. And throughout this, it's clear that Ahab is taking the lead in this alliance. It's a marriage alliance, it's a religious alliance, it's a military alliance, and Ahab is the one who's in charge. Jehoshaphat is devoting his people, not his people, the Lord's people, to Ahab's plan. He's putting his people on the line, his army on the line, to fight Ahab's battles. Ahab's the one in charge, and that's indicated throughout this narrative in chapter 18 by the way that the chronicler names Ahab. Ahab is first of all named as Ahab, that's his given name, but through most of the chapter he's not Ahab, he's called the King of Israel. Jehoshaphat treats him as the King of Israel, as the King of a united alliance of Israel and Judah. That's not just an offense to God, because he's allying with an idolater, it's a self-alienation, it's an alienation from his own stature and his own status. For the chronicler, there's only one king in Israel, only one legitimate monarchy, only one legitimate dynasty, and that's the Davidic dynasty. Jehoshaphat should be the king of Israel. He's the one who should claim that title. But he's now ceded that title and that leadership of the United Kingdom to Ahab and idolater. For Jehoshaphat, this alliance almost ends in his death we read through the end of 2 Chronicles 18, we would see the battle against the Arameans at Ramoth Gilead. Ahab puts himself in disguise, probably as a common soldier, so the Arameans don't attack him. Disguises never work in the Bible or, for that matter, in Shakespeare. Try it. You can do it. They don't work in Shakespeare either. Jehoshaphat goes out into the battle dressed like a king. And since the Arameans figure, well, we're fighting Israel... This guy in royal robes and wearing a crown, he must be the king of Israel. He must be Ahab. Let's go get him. And they chase him down, and Jehoshaphat is able to escape by the skin of his teeth by crying out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. Ironically, Ahab, in disguise, nobody pays attention to Ahab because he looks like a common soldier, somebody shoots an arrow at random, random and it hits through a chink in his armor and kills him. Jehoshaphat escapes, but just barely. This marital, religious, military alliance almost ends with Jehoshaphat's death. But the worst effects are not in the lifetime of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat enters into this marriage and religious alliance with the northern kingdom, with the idolatrous northern kingdom, and that that becomes the storyline for several generations of the, uh, of the Davidic dynasty. For several generations, that uh, that uh, false alliance, that idolatrous alliance reverberates through the history of Judah. Jehoram follows Jehoshaphat. Jehoram kills all his brothers, the other princes of the crown, and then follows the ways of Ahab throughout his life. He's succeeded by his son Ahaziah. Ahaziah, walks in the ways of Ahab. He's continuing the idolatry that was introduced by Jehoshaphat's alliance with Ahab. Ahaziah is ultimately killed by Jehu. You might remember Jehu. Jehu's the one that the Lord raises up to take vengeance against the house of Ahab. He's supposed to kill every member of the house of Ahab. Well, he's killing Ahaziah, who is a descendant of David. But he's considered a member of the house of Ahab because of his a devotion to Ahab's idols. Athaliah follows. After Jehu is finished, there are no descendants of Ahab in the northern kingdom. The only descendant of Ahab that has any power is in Judah. How do you have a queen, Athaliah, reigning in Judah who's a descendant of Ahab? Because Jehoshaphat entered into a marriage alliance with Ahab. Ahab's idolatry and Ahab's influence continues longer in Judah the south where he never reigned than it does in the north. Jehu wipes it all out in the north but Athaliah becomes queen in the south and Athaliah is Ahab's daughter. Athaliah, you might remember, kills all the descendants of David. Kills all the princes of the realm. Only one escapes and that's Joash and he escapes as an infant and they have to reintroduce him at the age of seven and put him on the throne. And then Athaliah is killed. But that's not the end either. Even Joash, after he reigns faithfully for a while, ends up reverting to idolatry after his mentor, Jehoiada, dies. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, Ahaziah, the grandson of Jehoshaphat, Athaliah, the daughter-in-law of Jehoshaphat, and Joash, the great-grandson of Jehoshaphat, all of them are carrying on, in some fashion, the ways of Ahab. And the reason they're doing that is because Jehoshaphat inlawed himself to an idolater. Jehoshaphat escapes. Jehoshaphat is generally a faithful king. But he almost destroys the dynasty. He almost destroys his entire family. He almost ends the, the, the dynasty of David and the kingdom of Judah because he inlawed himself to Ahab. Paul says, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What communion does light have with darkness? Is there a harmony between Christ and Baal? Does the temple of God have room for idols? Paul wants us to hear how absurd it is to think that we can ally ourselves with idolatry. We are children of light. Can light form a partnership with darkness? Can light make room for darkness in itself? No, light is supposed to dispel darkness. It's supposed to drive darkness away. It's absurd to think that light and darkness can mix, make some kind of murky darkness, some kind of slightly light darkness. No, light dispels darkness. You can't have an alliance of the two. Paul poses a stark choice before the Corinthians. The stark choice is Christ or Baal. Christ or Baal. The stark choice is righteousness or lawlessness. The stark choice is light or darkness. And Jesus poses the same choice on his disciples. You are either for me or you are against me. You either gather with me or you scatter abroad. Jehoshaphat spends his life mainly gathering But he sows seeds of scattering and destruction because he in-laws himself to Ahab. That stark choice that Paul and Jesus put in front of us has to shape our primary relationships in life. Paul applies this to marriage. Can an unbeliever be yoked together with a believer? Can light form a partnership, a communion in marriage, with darkness you parents as you're thinking about and praying and preparing for the marriages of your children need to remember the story of Jehoshaphat and avoid inlawing yourself to any Ahab those of you who are single who are looking forward to marriage looking forward to having a husband or wife you have to take the lesson of Jehoshaphat are you going to share a yoke with an unbeliever Are you going to in-law yourself to the house of Ahab? Jehoshaphat's story indicates you may be sowing seeds that will wreak destruction, not just for yourself, a painful life for yourself, but could wreak destruction as it did with Jehoshaphat for generations after you to three or four generations beyond you. Jesus calls his church to unity. But there is no unity on the basis of idolatry. That's what we find here in this passage, among other things. Ahab and Jehoshaphat are forming an alliance that's supposed to unite the kingdom back together. It's a great day. Now we have a united kingdom. The king of Israel and the king of Judah fighting alongside each other. That's the way it should be. Only it's not the way it should be because the king of Israel, the idolater, is in charge. The united around this Feast of demons, not the feast of the Lord. There's a way to pursue unity that actually leads to disunity and destruction. There's a way to uh, pursue unity in the church that actually ends up dividing it. We might think that a war of utter destruction against idols is a divisive thing to do, but in fact it's the most important thing, one of the most important things we can do to unify the church. That's what Jehoshaphat should be doing. That's what he does for part of his reign. He destroys the idols. That's the path of unity. That's not a path of disunity. In just a few moments, we'll all be sharing the Lord's Supper. This is a weekly covenant renewal with Jesus. We gather together each week as the bride of Christ, and we renew our covenant with Jesus in this foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're communing with our husband. And in communing with our husband, we are also determining, we're recommitting ourselves to avoid the table of demons, to avoid inlying ourselves to any other God or any other husband. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord or the cup of demons, Paul says. You cannot share the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If we do, we provoke the Lord to jealousy and to anger. In a few moments, we'll be sharing in this meal demonstrating again renewing our covenant with the Lord Jesus and demonstrating again that we are committed to not aligning with any other and not inlawing ourselves to any Ahab. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. He is a faithful king who renounces all idols, who turns from them and calls us to follow Him. We pray that You would give us grace to follow Him faithfully, to be wholly allied to You, to be Your faithful bride. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.